0: Luke chapter 6, once again, last week we began studying a sermon that Jesus preached, and as we mentioned at the very beginning, it's very likely the same uh, sermon as what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, If not, though, it is not unlikely for uh, preachers to preach the same kind of sermon in various places to various audiences, and so that's also another option is that this is just what Jesus was saying regularly as he went about to various crowds. But, uh, in that passage last week, we saw that those who follow Jesus have different values than those who do not who refuse to submit to him and uh, this he's preaching to a large crowd here and very likely in that crowd were many disciples, as we saw at the beginning of the passage last week, but also those who were skeptics. And so perhaps that's why at the very beginning of this passage he says, but to those who hear. Those of you who are listening to what I'm saying with spiritual interest and with spiritual ears. So as I read this next passage, Luke 6, verses 27 through 36, I pray that you will have ears to hear as well uh, the word of God. Beginning in verse 27 of Luke 6. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful." About 16 years ago, I spent the summer in Cairns, Australia, which is a city in the northeast corner of Australia, uh, ministering with a the church there, and it was a wonderful experience, wonderful summer of ministry, and part of the reason I wanted to do my church internship in a foreign context uh, was so that I would uh, be exposed to how it is to live in a, uh, as a Christian in various parts of the world, and part of that is you have, you know, some sense of culture shock and of not fitting into the culture where you are. I'm sure many of you have experienced this at different parts of your lives. But one experience that I had that summer, just minor, that uh, was not unusual that summer or I'm sure is not unusual for many other people around the world, is I went into a shopping mall one day and uh, went to go get some lunch. And as I was standing back, probably 10 or 15 feet from the menu board, at, you know, something like a McDonald's, I don't remember what it was, but you can kind of picture what the menu board was. And I was kind of looking there to see what I would get, evaluating what I would buy, the uh, the lady behind the counter, the worker, looked at me and she said, you're not from around here, are you? And I kind of looked down and I'm like, I'm wearing a t-shirt and shorts and a backpack and shoes and socks. Like what is giving away the fact that I'm not from around here? And it probably was the fact that I was wearing shoes and socks. (laughs) Uh, Even though I was in a a shopping mall in that part of Australia, and I've heard that it's not that way in most parts of Australia, but this was uh, not unusual in that part of Australia that People would just go to the mall barefoot, and uh, I wasn't doing that, so I didn't fit in the way that the locals fit in there. But that experience is not unlike what the experience that Christians have regularly. When people look at the lives of Christians, they should say, you're not really from around here, are you? And that's because we are citizens of a different kingdom. We are people whose values, as we saw in our passage last week, create different kinds of lives including different kinds of relationships, as we'll see in our passage this week. Those who follow Jesus have totally different lives because they have totally different values and totally different perspectives about what is important and what is true. And that results in very different relationships. And so what we see in this passage is that followers of Jesus relate to their enemies in a very different way than other people around us. And it makes it clear to those who watch our lives, you're not from around here, are you? Spiritually speaking, you don't fit in with the crowd because of the way that you relate to your enemies. Followers of Jesus relate to their enemies with self-sacrificial love. That's what this passage that we've just read tells us. And the question we want to ask is, so what specifically does that look like? for us as Christians to love our enemies, which is the first command in this passage in verse 27. What does it look like to respond to those who hate us? And maybe even before we get to that question, you might want to ask, why are you being hated in the first place? And that takes us back to our passage last week. Look back at verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you. when they hate you and they exclude you and they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. So there's the reason you're hated. There's the reason you have enemies. It's not because you're a jerk. It's because you love Jesus. That's the reason you have enemies is what Jesus is saying here. And so he's saying there are going to be people who hate you and who want nothing to do with you because you follow Jesus me because you follow the son of man and so how should you relate to those or respond to those who hate you because you love me that's the question that we're trying to get at here and of course we realize as well that likely in our context we have other enemies as well just as these people would have as well but perhaps you have co-workers who are intent on making your life miserable or maybe your roommate or someone else on your, on your hall as a college student or, or even a family member, someone who selfishly insists on their own way and they make your life difficult all the time. And you could even in your mind say, these people are my enemies. So while I think this passage is specifically talking about those who hate you because you love Jesus, I think we also want to ask, okay, how does this relate to other kinds of enemies? People who make our lives difficult, people who don't. Like us, people who are mean to us, who say awful things to us for various reasons. And then we could, you know, again, getting into the kind of front loading application here, you could be thinking about this in other contexts because I think it's possible you could say, well, I can't think of anybody who's ever been a jerk to me for, for any reason, or especially because of my allegiance to Jesus. And so let's just zoom out a little bit more. So we have these people who hate you because of your allegiance to Christ, you have people who hate you because, um, Perhaps they, they are family members, and they've seen all the worst in you, and you've seen the worst in them, and there's just been this long-standing kind of animosity toward each other, whether these be uh, siblings or or um, cousins, or even, unfortunately, in some cases, a spouse or divorced um, relative. What about people in our church that I just don't like, people I'm just too different from to want to spend time with? Could this passage possibly give us some insight into how we should relate to those people As well, maybe I don't like them because of their political persuasions or because of some particular theological nuance that they have. Just some fellow church members that I just don't really enjoy spending time with. Could this passage have some implications for us that way? And so we can think about that as we read this passage or study this passage together. So the ultimate question is, how do disciples relate to people who hate them? And Jesus says, the ultimate answer is, you love them. And what does it mean to love them? It's not going to mean you have to marry them. It's not going to mean you even necessarily have to live in the same house as them or even necessarily spend a ton of time with them. Maybe that's not going to be wise for that relationship. And I think I probably just need to say this as well. You're going to have to use some discernment in the way that you apply this to your context. But Don't use so much discernment that you say, this doesn't apply to me. It does apply to you. You just need to be wise in the way that you apply it. But how do disciples relate to people who hate them? They love them. And to love someone means you do what is in their best interest, even if it is of no benefit to you. And if you have been a parent, if you are a parent in other words, even if your children are well long gone out of your house, you know that you do this every day. I mean, when was the last time that catching someone else's vomit with your bare hands was something that was in your best interest? You do that because it's in their best interest. And it makes it easier to clean up the couch later. But ultimately, you do things as a parent every day that are disgusting and you know, menial and in the grand scheme of things, never going to be appreciated by anyone, including those children, <laughs> but you do them anyway because you love them, not because of some benefit you get from it. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he says, love your enemies, do what's in their benefit, even if it's not in your benefit. Do what's best for them, even if it's not what's best for you. And again, an enemy in this context, when he says love your enemies, I think he's referring specifically to these people who make your life miserable because you love Jesus. So perhaps, you know, last uh, two weeks ago in the pastoral prayer, we talked about Christians in Vietnam. We've talked about Christians in um, Algeria. We've talked about Christians in Morocco. And we could go on and on. We read these, these updates that we get from various missionaries. And they talk about people being imprisoned or being abused, and we could go on and on because of their love for Christ. And that's specifically who Jesus is talking about here when he's referring to enemies. And it would be really easy for us to conclude, okay, well, I'm going to have like a mental attitude that I love these people, but not actually do anything for them. And Jesus says that's not enough. He says do good for those people. Just like it's easy for us to do good for the people that love us. It should, we should also be doing good for those who are against us. And so again, there's some discernment needed here of what that looks like. But I think, you know, when I was praying a few minutes ago, the Lord would make us into generous people. That's part of it, that we um, move toward other people even when they are opposed to us, even when they are antagonistic toward us. Similarly, Jesus says to bless those who curse you. So here you have people who are dragging your name through the mud, maybe in the lunchroom at your office, or in the faculty lounge at your, at your school, or maybe in the newspaper because you are you know, more um, well-known in that case, and people are speaking evil of you, and you turn that on its head, and you say something positive about them, you say something loving about them. And so perhaps someone is is mocking you because of your faith and you you maybe have to get creative but you say you know I actually really appreciate that person's fill in the blank their creativity or their courage or you know you think of something that you can actually see this is a positive thing and you bless them you speak well of them in other words Now in the ESV here he says to pray for those who abuse you and I do want to be really clear So for one, I think that can just be the word mistreat, okay, so someone who mistreats you. If someone is actually physically abusing you, this passage is not saying just give it a pass because you love Jesus. Just let them do whatever they want to do. If you are in an abusive situation, and I have no inkling of any situation like this, but I think that's often the case and just want to be aware of that, but if you are in an abusive situation, you need to get help. Don't just pass on that and say, well, it's, it's not every day or even every week, it's just once in a while when they're really riled up. Don't put a pass on that. And and we want to have a culture in, at Brainerd where people are safe to get the help that they need to get um, without any threat of, um, of that becoming public or um, making the situation worse. And so uh, with, when, when I saw that word abuse this week, I thought, even though I don't think that's the specific nuance that this passage is trying to give us. I think we want to touch on that. I think we want to be wise about what happens in people's homes and in people's lives. But he specifically says to pray for those who, let's just say, mistreat you, who abuse you. How should you pray? And you can just be thinking here. Like, start letting those... Those um, wheels turn in your head. of What would it look like for me to pray a loving prayer request for someone who is my enemy? And again, thinking of all these different kinds of contexts of who that enemy might be. I told somebody yesterday or the day before, I think. Thankfully, I can only think of one person. I'm not going to tell you who that was, who that is. Well, I can only think of one person in the world who's actually really hard for me to love. And I have to fight with everything in me. To love that person. It's not someone here, just to be clear. It's not you. (laughs) But what does it look like for me to pray for that person in a loving way, in a way that reveals I want what is best for them? That's what love is. And so, one way, again, thinking of who the enemies might be in your life, pray for God to grant them faith and repentance in his mercy. That's what these people who are in prison in China or in Algeria or wherever else should be praying for their persecutors maybe in the strange and difficult providence of god they are in that jail cell to be proclaiming the gospel the way that paul and silas were to their jailers and there will be long-term gospel fruit from that that's not outside the realm of possibility by any means maybe those are the only christians that that jailer in algeria is ever going to meet And God put you, that Christian, there to preach the gospel to them. So pray for God to grant that enemy faith and repentance. Pray that your own heart would be moved with humility toward them and that you would move toward them with with kindness and a spirit of forgiveness, even if they're not wanting your forgiveness or even acknowledging that they need to be forgiven or that you need to be forgiven, whatever the exact details may be in that relationship. Pray that there would be a spirit of kindness and a spirit of forgiveness. So that then when forgiveness is an actual possibility and you can have that exchange of a promise that you will not bring it back up with them or with other people or with your in your own heart, when that forgiveness becomes a possibility, your heart's already there. You don't have to think about it. It's, it's an instinct at that point because you've been praying that God would give you and them a spirit of forgiveness. Pray for them to enjoy, whether that person is a Christian or not, pray for them to enjoy God's common grace to them. It is... Amazing how kind God is. And this passage alludes to the fact that he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God is not only kind to those people who say, thank you, Lord. I'm gonna celebrate Thanksgiving every November as a way of saying thank you for your kindness to me. He doesn't do that to only those people who are thankful. He's kind to the unthankful. Again, as parents are every single day. And so pray that, God, that these enemies of ours, whoever they may be in your life, if you can think of anyone who would be your enemy, pray that they would enjoy God's common kindness towards them. And we know that from Romans chapter 2, the kindness of God brings people to repentance. And so that drives us right back. Lord, please bring that person to repentance. Help them see their need for saving grace. Verses 29 and verse, uh, twenty nine and 30, I think we need to uh, get the spirit of this, coming back to this idea of generosity I mentioned in the prayer and already here in this sermon. But we also want to remember that this whole passage is in a context of Jesus giving, um, not hypothetical, I think um, hyperbolic, that's the word I'm looking for, hyperbolic commands. In other words, just to be uh, super clear, he's giving the, the spirit of the law, and sometimes we need to be wise and be discerning in the way we apply these things to the letter of the law, you know, as opposed to the letter of the law. So in other words, in this passage in Matthew 5 through 7, you have there a passage that says that if you are tempted to lust, you should pluck your eye out and cut your hand off. And unfortunately, sometimes in the past, people have literally done that does that actually help them not lust anymore? No. So clearly Jesus is being hyperbolic. He's giving kind of the the idea that you should make it really hard for you to sin. That's what that passage is telling you. You should make it super difficult for you to give in to temptation. So if that's what Jesus means when he says, pluck out your eye or cut your hand off in a parallel passage to this one, perhaps when he says, Turn the other cheek when someone slaps you, or punches you in the jaw. Let him do it again. Maybe he's giving, you know, a hyperbolic idea that you should be willing to be hurt for the sake of the gospel. Maybe that's one way we could put it. But even Jesus himself, there were times in his life when he wasn't going to let people throw him off a cliff. Of course, eventually he let them hang him up on a cross. But there were times where even he walked away from danger. So again, we need to be discerning as Christians. I think there is great need for us to be wise in the way we apply these these commands. But the concept for sure is be generous even to those people who are jerks toward you. That's the gist of verse 29 and verse 30. If someone's going to steal something, maybe they need something more as well. So be generous to them. If someone's going to be mean to you, realize they're being mean. Hopefully, because of what I believe, not because of the way I've been a jerk toward them. And so we seek to be generous. We seek to be loving toward these enemies of ours. So verses 27 27 through 31 is answering the question, okay, so how do disciples relate to their enemies? And it is with love. You should love your enemies. You should be kind to those who hate you. But what is interesting is that Jesus hasn't given us the reason to do this yet. And that's what verses 32 through 36 provide for us, is the reason you should love your enemies, the reason you should relate to non-Christians or enemies of the gospel or any other enemy in your life, whoever that may be. Here's the reason you should do it. And he actually gives three reasons you should love your enemies this way. You should respond to your enemies with self-sacrificial love. So let's just look at what these reasons are and we'll talk through them. So verse 32 through 34 tells us you should love your enemies in order to demonstrate grace. And again, I'll come back and unpack these in a second. Secondly, you should do this to be rewarded. The Bible doesn't shy away from that. And third, you should do this to demonstrate you are God's child. So let's talk about this first one. The reason you should respond to your enemies with self-sacrificial love those who follow Jesus don't just do what non-Christians do when you have an enemy. You don't stand You stand out because of the fact that you're not from around here. You're a citizen of heaven. And one of the reasons you do that is to demonstrate grace. Verse 32 through verse 34. You love those who don't love you. Because if you only love those who love you, you're being just like the world. You're having this tit-for-tat uh, relationship with one another that, that actually is not any different from the way that A pagan person, a wicked person would live. What we're seeing here is that those who follow Jesus relate differently than the world does. The world, what does the world do when you have someone who doesn't like you? You retaliate. You push back. You stand on your own two feet and say, you know, if no one else is going to protect me, I'm going to protect myself. The world is going to be defensive and protective. The world is going to be graspy. The world is going to operate on a tit-for-tat basis. The world demands and demeans. It takes rather than gives. It curses rather than blesses. And Jesus is turning that whole system on its head. The world hates, curses, abuses, strikes, and takes. And this is considered normal and is considered necessary. And Jesus is saying, just lay all that aside. Because if all you do is love the people who are kind to you and who give to you generously... You're being just like any other non-Christian. And so he says that when you love people who don't love you, you're actually demonstrating the gospel to them. You are demonstrating true grace. Same thing in verse 33. You do good to those who do evil to you. And in so doing, you reveal what grace looks like. Grace is God being generous and immensely kind toward us even though we deserve the opposite. It's not just that you don't deserve it, it's that you deserve the opposite. And He is gracious to you. He pours out mercy on you. And so the same thing in verse 34. You lend to those who you expect to never see that item again. Whether it be a drill or a shirt or a cooking implement, whatever that is, you're willing to let it go because God's grace is so rich toward you, and you want to demonstrate what God's grace looks like to other people. In that way, God has put you as an instrument of, in other, you're, you're like the person who spreads the frosting on the cake. You are, all you're doing is just showing how beautiful this is, of how good God is to, uh, by demonstrating His, his grace. Verses 32-34 through tell you one of the reasons you should love your enemies is to demonstrate what grace looks like, who God actually is, what God looks like. Verse 35 says, But love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Well, that's the second time in very close proximity that Jesus has talked about rewards. In verse 23, Rejoice in the day when people hate you and exclude you, revile you and spurn you because of the Son of Man. Rejoice and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Other passages say, lay up your treasure in heaven. So the Bible doesn't shy away from the concept that it is good to be rewarded, that we want to have good things come to us. And what exactly that is, we don't know. But from our passage last week, the implication at least was that those rewards are in the next life. That we're living for another time and for another place. And again, this sounds like nonsense. And I I mentioned last week, like Don Quixote, who's going out to fight invisible enemies. And those who watch him think, what is he doing? And that's how non-Christians look at us when we do good to those who hate us. But we say we're doing it because we're living for a different place. We're living for a different master, for a different king. And I know this doesn't make sense to you because you have the values of everyone from around here. But we're not from around here. We live for the kingdom of God as citizens of a different world. So you love your enemies to demonstrate grace, to be rewarded, and third, to demonstrate you are God's child. Verse 35 The second half of it says, And you will be sons of the Most High. And what this sounds like, and what I want to say is this isn't what it means. What it sounds like is you do this and you become God's child. And it's actually, no, you do this because you're God's child. You do this and in so doing you demonstrate that you are already a son of God. You notice this name, sons of the Most High, that has shown up several times already here in in Luke. In chapter 1, verse 32, I'm just going to go back and read these for you very quickly. This Son, speaking to Mary, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the same thing in verse 35. Mary says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The The angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And then in chapter 1, verse 76, talking about John the Baptist and you child will be called the prophet of the most high. And now we have this fourth use of this of this name for God, beautiful name for God, saying you will be sons of the most high. We we often sing in a song called How Deep the Father's Love for Us, a passage reflecting on a passage a line reflecting on a passage in Hebrews that says that Jesus came to bring many sons to glory, if I'm not mistaken that was in Come Behold a Wonders Mystery as well this morning. God is bringing many sons to glory, many people to be in right relationship with him. And so, we love our enemies not so that we will be sons, but because we are sons. It demonstrates that we are God's children. But sometimes what we need to realize is that other Christians in our context, speaking of discipleship, of what it is to help other Christians follow, uh, follow Jesus well, sometimes we may have eyes to see what is true in someone's life that they can't see in their own life. All right. In other words, we all have blind spots, and maybe you can see in someone's life they don't relate well to other people. Maybe you actually find out that one of our church members has lots of enemies, maybe for various reasons, okay? Maybe they've been a jerk in the past and, you know, the the church member has, and so lots of people don't like them and are jerks back to them, and so you have this animosity between them, and these are enemies. But we don't see our own blind spots well, so maybe this church member doesn't see this. What should you do? I'm going to give you two options before giving some sub-options. Say nothing or say something. Help me cross out one of these options. Let's cross out the say nothing option. All right, That's not an option. You're a church member. That means you're part of a body. That means that you're related to this hand over here the way you're related to this hand over here. And you can't just say, oh, never mind that one. Just let's deal with the one that looks pleasant. It's fine to have Good eyesight. But if you don't have hands to grab what your eyes see, what does that actually do for you? In other words, you are related to other members of the body. So when you see a church member who's living in a way that does not honor God, you need to move toward them. And let's go back to that say something to them option. So now what are some options you could say to those Christians, to those church members who are perhaps not seeing their own sin? I think the main thing I would do is start with questions rather than accusations. Accusations harden the heart, but questions stir the conscience. That's what you want to do, is stir someone's conscience and help them think about what they can't see. You're kind of helping them, you know, become aware of who they are, become self-aware, in other words. And one of the ways you do that is by asking questions. Hey, why do you talk about that person at your job or that relative of yours the way that you do? Because when you do, it sounds like you're talking about them the way that a non-Christian would talk about them. That's just one example of a question, but there's a lot of nuance you can add to that to your specific situation. But what I'm trying to say is that we as a church commit to watching over one another. And so if you see someone in the church who has lots of enemies, you might want to help that person see that because they may not see it themselves. Our, our church covenant, one of the lines of our church covenant says, we commit to watching over and holding one another accountable to the Bible in brotherly love. If you are a member of this church, that's what you have committed to, is helping other Christians live the Christian life as uncomfortable as that may be. And so we move toward one another, we help one another obey this command. And sometimes we don't even know we're not obeying it. And so we need each other's help. We need to help disciple one another's. And we do this because, as various passages throughout the Bible tell us, Christians are to be peacemakers. We're not supposed to be the ones riling other people up, making animosity where there's already peace. We are to be peacemakers. Moving toward the ungodly, the evil, the ungrateful, mentioned in this passage in verse 35. Helping other Christians demonstrate what grace looks like to the world. And maybe you could say, well, it sounds like Christians are just a bunch of pushovers. And again, this is where, yeah, we need, we need wisdom. We need discernment to know how to apply this so that we don't end up having nothing ourselves, and we end up having to then be a burden on other people because we've given away our shirt as, as Jesus commands them to do here. Maybe we end up having to... to you know, become beggars of our own kind because we've given away everything we possibly have. And that's not what Jesus has in mind here. Again, going back to the fact that some of these commands in sermons like this are probably somewhat hyperbolic. Get the spirit of it that we should be generous people. We should be kind people without feeling like we have to uh, lay down the letter of the law in every single case. But this passage ends with this beautiful reminder of who God is and what it should look like when we Follow him when we are his children, his sons and daughters, he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. How do they know that God was merciful? Because of passages like exodus thirty four six The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And that passage from Exodus 34 is quoted over and over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, in every part of the Old Testament. And then it's interpreted and applied and quoted throughout the New Testament. This is who God is. He is a God who is characterized by mercy. And if that is who He is, and we claim to be His sons, that then is who we seek to be as well. And you say, that sounds super difficult. And I would say, yes, it is. And that's why we need God's grace. God's grace is what motivates us to want to do this in the first place. And it's what supplies the ability to do this, to move toward other people, to remember that God says, vengeance is mine. You don't have to pay, make them pay. You don't have to settle the score. Let God be the one who does that. He says, vengeance is mine. And so we need discernment in this, but we also need God's grace to move toward people who hate us, who despise us, and who want nothing to do with us because of our love for Christ. And in so doing, people may say, Boy, you do not look like you are from around here. You are so different. You let things go that other people don't let go, you respond in ways that are totally countercultural encounter human. It just doesn't make sense that you would speak well of someone who hates you and speaks evil of you. But when that happens, praise God that we are demonstrating what God is like to a watching world. Would you close with me in prayer and asking the Lord to give us the grace we need to live as those who love self-sacrificially? Lord, we do indeed ask for your help in this way. That's, all, that's what we need. Is we need your sustaining help to live as people from a different country, looking for a different city where you are the builder and maker. So help us to love our enemies. And when we have church members who are stuck in sin, who are stuck in a habit of hating their enemies instead of loving them, we pray that you would help us to provoke them to heart repentance to not excuse their sin, but to help them to develop a plan of some kind that will help them fight their sin and live in holiness and righteousness in a way that honors You. We desperately need Your help, and so we pray, pray for it now in Christ's name. Amen.